I'm Taryn Ward. And I'm Stephen Jones. And this is Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. We're taking a closer look at the core issues around social media, including the existing social media landscape, to better understand the role social media plays in our everyday lives in society. To start, we're looking back at where it all started, pre-smartphone online social networking. By thinking about where social media started and why, and thinking about how it's changed and why, we're better placed to consider which of these changes have been for the better and which have been for the worse. Today, we'll look closely at some of the earliest online social networks. Before dial-up, before America Online, and way before the era of big tech, there were bulletin board systems, BBSs, and of course, CompuServe. Although outwardly these networks don't closely resemble our current experience of social media, if we start with our why question, why did online social networks start in the first place? What need did it serve? Or what need was it designed to serve? This is a good place to start. If you didn't catch our episode on defining social networks, we use one outlined in a 2007 paper published by the Oxford University Press. Social networks are web-based services that allow individuals to, one, construct a public or semi-public profile within a bounded system, two, articulate a list of other users with whom they share a connection, and three, view and traverse the list of connections and those made by others within the system. By this definition, some of the early PBSs wouldn't qualify, but some would, and importantly, in many ways, this is where things really started. When we ask why did online social networking start in the first place and what need was it designed to serve, the answer for once is a simple one. People wanted to connect in new and different ways. So let's jump back to the late 70s and early 80s and think about who those early users were and what was happening, because context matters. We could spend hours on this, but for our purposes, this time period after the civil rights movement in Watergate is often discussed as one of transition politically, economically, and culturally, whether for the better or the worse. Most middle-income families had started or completed the transition from radio to television, often even to color television, and many even had their own video game console for the first time. Transitions are rarely easy, and this period was not without its challenges, including extreme inflation and a recession, but it was anything but boring. Steve, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about the late 70s and early 80s in the UK, either from experience or stories that you've heard? All right. Yeah. I mean, I was around. I remember I remember clearly the, the, the summer of 76, which was like this absolutely staggering drought and standpipes were erected in the, in the streets. I remember equally clearly the winter of discontent where garbage piled up in the streets and we had rolling blackouts. That year, my mother bought uh, my sister and I um, the Casper the Friendly Ghost game which was fluorescent and we could play it in the dark, which was really helpful because quite often in the evenings, we were operating by the light of a paraffin lamp and the gas fire because all of the electricity in the house was off. And this battery-powered fluorescent sort of Casper game, which we still have, I think my sister has it. You know, that was it. That was the that was what we could see. You couldn't play another games. There was no TV. Um, radios didn't work. So... It, you know, it was um, that was a big cultural shift, and I think created a lot of energy, which resulted in the subsequent election of of Margaret Thatcher. So that was a that was the huge sort of like sea change, and that was a, a different type of conservatism. Up until then, I think the last forty or so years, 
everybody, whether left or right, was more or less more or less on the same sort of page around sort of social security net and all those other types of things. But this was this was a huge change for the better or the worse. Um, I think that intro summed it up, and was then followed, I guess, in the U.S. by the rise of of Ronald Reagan, you know, the taking of hostages in Iran in the 1980, I guess. Yeah, so it was it was definitely a, a, a big sort of change. And we'd gone through the fuel crisis where people couldn't get fuel or the lineup for, you know, for, for oil and gas was, was absolutely immense. So there was a lot of stuff going on. And subsequently to Margaret Thatcher taking over, you know, there was the sell-off of council housing and the rise of car ownership and reduction in restrictions on out-of-town building and, and so on and so forth, which meant that cars became much more common. And uh, yeah, it, it was just a it was a lot of a lot of change. My kids now talk about how everything is always changing, and I guess it's probably true that the rate of change has become greater. But those were major upheavals, and fundamentally set the conditions with which we live today. I think we're still living through some of the consequences of those times. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point because, I mean, this whole episode, really the point is to set up for what would come next in terms of social media, but context really does matter. And I think some of the social media phenomena that we've seen couldn't happen without the culture shifts that came first. And they were successful because they responded to what was happening culturally, politically, economically. And your point about you know, the winter of discontent and the standpipes, which for Americans who are listening and don't know about this because I didn't know, they erected standpipes in the street because you couldn't get running water to your house. Um, so you would have to go out, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. You have to go out and fill whatever drinking water you needed for the day and bring it home. Yeah, I mean, I think you had garden watering restrictions last year because there was a, a drought in the summer, right? Uh, I seem to remember that. And it was like that, but but it was like that, but on steroids. And though that, and the, it's in, you know almost inconceivable that people would be sort of okay. And I mean, I guess people weren't really okay with it, but it was just a fact of life that nothing was getting watered. I'm not sure whether they ever actually used the standpipes, but they were put out, and they were like, they were absolutely right. There, there were there were connections in the street where people would have to go and collect the water they were going to use in the house, which is you know it's remarkable that that was the situation in the UK because there just wasn't enough water in the reservoirs to to meet the demand. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and that it's still an issue now. So, I mean, obviously not to that extent, at least as far as I know. But, you know, people were told you can't fill your pools, you can't water your garden, you can't water your vegetable patch. Um, there were some exemptions, but by and large, you know, there just wasn't enough water to go around. And it's not like we're talking about a desert situation, right? I mean, the UK is sort of known for rain and for being a pretty humid place. So sort of a sort of a strange connection timing-wise. And of course, the electricity, gas, whatever connection. I mean, we didn't exactly have a winter of discontent, but there were a lot of people who had a very difficult winter here. And so, you know, as much as things change, they also sort of stay the same. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? We, we'd had, you know, will that, the, the, the problems which the UK have, has been having recently sort of spur the same sort of cultural, economic and political shift in the next few years that the, the 70s caused which resulted in, in what we saw in the 80s and the, and the 90s. I'm, I mean, it's actually going to be really interesting to see how this this plays out. Um, I mean, I think it, possibly not quite the difference because there isn't that much daylight between 
the left and the right anymore, as there as there was uh, between you know the Labour Party of Callaghan and the and the Conservative Party of Margaret Thatcher. Definitely not the same problem in the US. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, different level of problem, which perhaps we'll get to on a different episode. I hope not. Um, turning back to <laughs> social media, I think it, your point is is a really interesting one. You know, will the the things that are happening in our everyday lives now will it reflect similar changes in terms of technology and how we connect online that we saw in in the eighties? Because there was this shift. You know, remember now that we're talking about a time that was pre dial up. If that's hard for you to wrap your mind around, it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around because I just don't think of a time. I think of no internet and then dial up and then this, you know, the beep, boop, beep, whatever sound. But I don't often think about that time Mm -hmm. before dial up. So late 70s into the 80s. Computers still fairly limited, right? So they're becoming more common, but, but certainly not something that every family would have or most families would have. And there wasn't a whole lot to do with them, even if you did have them. Sort of like a glorified calculator and typewriter, I guess. But for certain yeah. people, they were figuring out how to do more and how to connect using phone lines and, and how to make this really work in a different way. So most of the use was limited to major institutions or universities. So one example that I love to show how limited this this really was is that even the BBC didn't gain access until 1989. So really, really limited number of people who, who were playing online and setting up these communities early on. <laughs> it's remarkable. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? Yeah. The BBC is the one institution in the UK which is dedicated to communicating with other people. Like that's that's its job. It's not there to facilitate the communication like the telephone network. Its job is to talk to other people, and it didn't have access to, you know, online communication until 1989. Yeah, and and there are similar. We're not picking on the BBC, by the way. There are lots of institutions like it that didn't have access until until much later, and even when they did, it was through universities. I have to I have to share this just to paint the picture a little bit further. So one commentator has described these early users of these bulletin board systems as this is a quote, so don't get upset with me. Ardent enthusiasts and techno babbling hobbyists, pocket protector wearing social rejects or nerds, boring reclusive nerds at that. Pouch. Yeah, it's not my it's not my line, but it does paint a picture. Not the most generous description, but I don't think it's necessarily untrue, unfair maybe. But the point really that this commentator was trying to make and that we're trying to make now in a in a slightly gentler way is that it would have taken some really specific expertise, time, care, patience, motivation to set up these early networks. There was no clear path to revenue or professional rewards. So this had to be really important to them. I think that's right. I mean, it 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 was. And it was completely beyond my my capability or even understanding. I mean, I didn't even think about using computers to do this. We had we had Pong. Do you remember Pong? They would plug it into yes. the TV and you'd have two paddles which went up up and down either side and the football, which would have two paddles on each two things on each side which you could control like 
digitized foosball. Yeah, the idea that computers would sort of connect to one another wasn't really something which I'd thought about until we watched the the movie War Games in 1993, where a kid, you know, war dials, which I actually had to look that term up, which is where a, a, a computer would be connected to the telephone network and it would just dial everything in the neighborhood to see where it got a digital signal and a connection to another computer. And of course, he breaks into the AI system. And the fact that we thought that could be built at that time, you know, was bloody ludicrous because clearly they, they, it just wasn't possible. Um, and then the, the computer famously learns that tic-tac-toe is the reason why you shouldn't have a, a nuclear war because you can't win. That was the movie in 10 seconds. But, you know, that was it. That, like, that, that computer, his computer from his room talked to other computers, and that was a complete revelation. I was doing, gosh, uh, CSE, which this is the forerunner of GCSEs in 1983-84 uh, uh, in computer science, and we were still learning about punch cards as, as part of the syllabus. I mean, we actually had, you know, little Welsh-built Dragon 32 computers to do basic programming on. They were not connected to each other, let alone the internet or, you know, anything outside. But yeah, we were learning how they used punch cards to program computers in big institutions. And one of the big shows of that era was Wonder Woman with Linda Carter. And they had a computer in a set in that, but it was these big sort of like filing cabinet size steel boxes with tape decks whirling in the background. That was the state of the art computing for TV then. So, you know, average people hadn't, it hadn't occurred to them, I think, most people that you could do this. So the people who knew they could do it and knew how to do it were absolutely these these nerdy people. And I say that as, as you know, a king nerd myself, there is nerds change the world in fundamental ways. The problem is they don't always understand how it's going to turn out. And I think social media is one of those things. Yeah. It's interesting, your reference to AI when you were talking just then, because I it almost feels like there is something similar. So in our super nerd circles, you know, AIML has been part of the conversation for quite a long time. Um, we've been talking about it and trying to figure it out and playing with it a little bit. And then really this year, all of a sudden, it's everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's using it. ChatGPT made it accessible to a huge number of people, or at least you know, the, the media coverage that it got made it clear that this was sort of out there and, and available for people to use. And you know, not that I'm comparing AI ML to the internet exactly or, or to those early social network systems, but there is sort of a similar sense of it sort of stays just below the surface and then all of a sudden there's this huge leap forward and it's everywhere. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, other than science fiction, the actual practical building and working with machine learning and, um, you know, real AI systems has been the work of nerds up until now. It wasn't really in the public domain. You know, what did we do? We played chess with it because it would show how clever our programming was and, uh, you know, other things. But but ChatGPT is like these bulletin boards turning into Facebook, but perhaps a little bit before that, maybe turning into MySpace or something. It's suddenly become mainstream. And I'm reminded of, of, of a talk I, I saw at a conference about biotechnology, and it was somebody who was at sort of IBM in the at the beginning of the 70s. And they're like, you know, we saw these massive increases in the capability of the technology, but what we didn't realize is we were actually in pretty much the flat stage of how the technology was developing. And 
you know, it wasn't until we actually hit the exponential increase in the capability of the technology that we realized that these amazingly quick pro, you know, uh, progress that we thought we were making was actually incredibly slow. And these computers were only like crawling forward. And you just never know at the time where you are on that exponential growth curve. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion that we're, you know, with, with AI, we're still very much in that early flat bit, just above nothing at all. Anybody who says they know where this is going to go is, is basically reading tea leaves and you should trust them about as much as somebody that's <laughs> predicting the future of AI from tea leaves. I don't know. I think there's probably some pretty scrupulous tea readers out there. I'm not sure the same is true for... That's probably true. <laughs> rather, than, rather than Twitter prognosticators on AI, you should trust the tea leaf readers. Maybe, maybe you should. Why not? At least nobody's calling themselves the godfather of tea leaf reading. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I think I think your point is is important. So where are we? We are, I would say, before if we're if we're comparing social networking to AI, we are definitely in this period of time before ChatGPT. We are well before it. Yeah. This is still very early, very clumsy. It's labor intensive. So let's let's start with bulletin board systems. What were they? Online meeting places where users could share files and games, including pirated content, and they could communicate. Typically, these were run by hobbyists and were often local with a meet-in-person component. This was partially to avoid long-distance fees because, remember, this was in dial-up. It didn't quite work that way, so you would have to actually use your phone to call into wherever this is happening through your computer. So that's not the most sophisticated description, but... Just stay with me because it's not really the point. The point is more that the people who were organizing this and even the people who were using this needed special equipment to even be able to to participate. So again, very, very high threshold. It was not it was not an easy, easy thing to access. It was not for everyone. Eventually there there came a period of time where people did try to commercialize and monetize this, and they would charge fees. And it was a different sort of approach. But this is not the equivalent of Facebook or, or something like that. It was not organized that well. It was often still run by a volunteer who was asking for money just to keep things working. So it was largely still, although maybe not officially a nonprofit, it was run more like that than as a money-making venture. When did this change? You can argue this different ways and in how it shifted. But I think the next big thing to come along is com was CompuServe. And this began strictly as a business solution and expanded into the public in the late 80s. So we're just now before America Online, just before sort of our chat GPT moment. And CompuServe actually started as something really similar to a bulletin board system, but it allowed email messaging and discussion forums in a different way. Believe it or not, it was actually founded in 1969. Um, so it was around it was around a good while. One other fun fact, whether you pronounce it GIF or GIF, that format was also introduced through CompuServe in 1987. Good grief. <laughs> I mean, isn't it isn't it isn't it the case now that that GIFs or GIFs are no longer cool? Um, at least for Gen Z and Gen Gen Alpha, although I think the rest of us are feeling very resentful about being judged that way. I, I think that's right. I think 
I've my understanding is now they're used ironically, um, not in a very flattering way for your generation and for mine. Yeah, that that seems to be the way this goes. But I think they're wrong about that, as they were about hair partings. So we'll see uh, who wins. Uh, who wins in the end? And it, it's very sad for those of us who who like them. And I know um, I know quite a few people who do. Most of whom are younger than me. It, it's amazing that it's been around that long, right? Um, so I suppose. When you think of it that way, from 87 till now, that's a pretty good lifespan for any piece of tech. Yes. Yeah, it really is. And I didn't, so I did not use bulletin board systems and I did not use CompuServe. My first experience was really the America Online era. But just a, a couple of points about how this would have worked. Not only were there no smartphones, there were no computers as we know them either. And even dial-up would come later. So, so this was really not super convenient. So even after CompuServe and when that started to be a thing and people started to use this more, it was still really not super accessible. People were not like, you know, opening their phones at the dinner table to check their CompuServe messages. No, it was still limited to to a computer and you would have to, you know, go to a different room. Function-wise or feature-wise, it was also still really very limited. So Steve, as you sort of set out earlier in the episode, the sort of standard definition for what an online social network is, we see these these systems meeting those definitions in most cases. Um, but the functionality really was so limited. I think for our purposes, rather than thinking of this as the start of social media as we know it, it's probably more helpful to think of it as the precursor. Yeah. Yeah, and, and as you were talking just now, I was thinking about you know th- these groups of people whose whose you know per- own personal investment and interests sort of drive them to create these boards, and it's like the people who spend hours of their time moderating Wikipedia and running Reddit communities, you know, and Reddit was very topical this year, and maybe we'll spend some time in another episode talking about that kerfuffle but you know it's the work of these volunteers which makes the platforms what they are and so that you know the idea of this seems to be you know this is wikipedia and reddit are really an extension of these of these ideas and perhaps facebook and and uh, twitter and so on not so much but i mean i think devotees of wikipedia which i would say i am and reddit which i've sort of become a little bit they're still very engaging ideas and genuine because I think there are genuine communities who do this work. Yes, I think that's that's right. And I think that's a great way to circle back to the point of this episode, really. What was going on? Why did this even happen? How did this come about? The, it was not obvious that people would go through the effort to make something like this happen and work. There was very little, in many ways, benefit, measurable benefit to to putting in all this effort to do this. So why did they do it? was about connecting. It was about community. It was about doing something just like the best of Wikipedia, the best of Reddit, the best of these networks is about doing this even even though there's no obvious personal gain. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's that's one of the problems. And again, this example was Reddit. What is good for the platform and the company and the CEO was not good for the communities who actually make it what it is. And we saw, you know, um, can only be called a, a bit of a, a bit of a bus stop. There was a summer of discontent on Reddit because those, you know, those imperatives were no longer aligned. And I think that's it's always dangerous for a, a service provider to be out of step with its 
with its constituent users because it is in fact really only the sum of its parts. A good lesson for for everyone in social media, I guess. But yeah, these these boards are really interesting, um, you know. And apparently, some of them are still functioning, which is absolutely amazing. Yes, yeah, it really is. It's incredible, it, given how much has changed and how much time has passed. It's amazing that some of these things continue on. Yeah, and when you were talking about this, you know, we're we're going to do do a bit of a uh, an exploration of sort of ham radio and CB radio because. You know, that was even before um, this, of people reaching out and connecting. And it made me think of the same thing because, you know, people who were interested in, in ham shortwave radio spent a lot of money and a lot of time connecting with people that they would never meet on the other side of the world in many cases, places they would never visit. And it was this need to connect and the, and the love of talking to people and communicating with people that drove them to do it. And, you know, this is, a, this is becoming a bit of a theme I guess one of the questions we can ask about current social media is, are they actually providing a way for people to do that, that, that meets the, what people need? And if not, what is that going to mean mean for them? And that'll have impact in, in all of our future episodes, including the one on, uh, on TikTok. That's a great question. And we'll continue to trace the evolution of social media with a particular focus on the US and the UK in future episodes. And in the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website. You can find this and more information about us at thebrightapp.com. Until next time, I'm Stephen Jones. And I'm Taryn Ward. Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines.